Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Maurizio Isabella to tell us all about his recently published book from Princeton University Press titled Southern Europe in the Age of Revolutions. This is a fascinating book to understand what was happening in the various countries of Southern Europe um, in the period after, during the Napoleonic Wars, the Congress of Vienna, to figure out kind of what is the monarchy going to look like? What is government going to look like? What's the role of the military? Um, Mainly in Portugal, Spain, the Italian peninsula, Sicily, and Greece. So, you know, not a small part of the world. Um, And Maurizio does a fabulous job of helping us understand what happens in each of these places in the 1820s, my apologies, and also how they go together, how we can understand these moments and movements um, and really kind of reframe our broader historical understanding of the time period and the place. So Maurizio, I'm so pleased that you're here on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you very much, Miranda. It's entirely my pleasure uh, to talk to you about my recently published book. And maybe a few words about uh, myself. Is that okay, Miranda? Yes. I, I think we should probably start there. Before we dive into all of these things in the book, um, could you maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain kind of why you decided to write this? Yes, sure. Um. I'm a professor of modern history at Queen Mary University of London, where I've been teaching for the last 17 years. And I'm an Italian national by origin. And by origin, I was trained as um, um, a historian of uh, 19th century Italy and historian of ideas. And I've always been interested in going beyond the national as a historian. And now, 10 years ago, I decided um, to write a book about these revolutions for, um, um, I guess, two different set of reasons. The first was mainly, I guess, political. I, I decided to write this book just in the aftermath of the financial crisis, that um, the crisis of the public debt that, I, that um, affected um, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and Greece, that led to a rescue package um, and in 2011 and in this context sort of um, stereotypes about southern Italy being the problem area of Europe along with kind of renewed ideas of exceptionalism among scholars not re- resurfaced and so I was aware you know of this context which I wanted to um, deal with um, in historically by going back to a moment in history where actually uh, Southern Europe was at the forefront of the struggle for democracy, although already sort of um, weaker than Northern Europe. So this is the political context that led me to write this book. There was also an intellectual reason. I had been until then a stern of ideas, interested in the circulation of ideas, and I wanted to retrain myself as a historian to write about more countries beyond Italy and also deal with other types of history, not just intellectual history, but also social history, political history, history of culture and history of practices, as well as global history. That's a very interesting combination of reasons and I think comes through a lot in the content of the book. Um, And so given that idea of kind of the sense of time and identifying key moments, can you tell us a bit about the 
what period you chose to cover in the book and sort of how you made that decision of what time to look at. Yes, absolutely. The 1820s are the main object of the book because it is in the 1820s there are a set of simultaneous revolutions broke out in uh, um, just over a year in Spain, Portugal, the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, Naples, Sicily, and uh, Greece. But I reassess this revolutionary moment from the South in a longer chronological span because um, I claim that the origin of these appeals can, um, has to be found in the Napoleonic Wars, in the Napoleonic expansion in these uh, European and extra-European uh, peripheries, but also that these um, revolutions had long-term legacies and effects up to roughly 1870, uh, which is maybe something we can talk about later on. So the moment is a specific moment when revolutions broke out simultaneously, but I, and that's why I take it as the heart of the book, but I look, I, I reframe it in a longer chronological span. Very helpful context. Um, and I think probably familiar to a lot of historians, the idea that something might pop up in a way, but there's a lot more before and after that's relevant as well. The idea of things happening in different countries simultaneously suggests that the answer to my next question might be yes. But of course, historians, the answer is never yes or no. It's much more complicated than that. So to what extent, in what ways were these revolutionary moments connected or related to the ones happening at the same time in other places? Uh, they certainly were. They were not just simultaneous, but uh, connected. First of all, because there was a kind of domino effect um, connecting one to the other. The first, chronologically, was the one that broke out in Spain, j uh, just outside Cadiz, on the 1st of January 1820. But uh, very soon and very fast, news about these events reached the other countries across Southern Europe, across the Mediterranean and beyond. Uh, and so this news unleashed a sort of set of events People in the squares of Lisbon, or in the squares of Naples, or the cities of Messina and Palermo in Sicily, were talking about these Spanish events, and when revolutions broke out in these other cities, they were actually shouting in the, in the squares, hurrah, to the revolution of Spain. So, first connection is people being aware of revolutions, a bit as it happened uh, not so long ago in, in, with the Arab Spring. What also connected these revolutions was a circulation of information, but also of printed material. That the constitutions that were introduced um, as a result of these revolutions um, circulated across all of these countries. Other public documents, like the manifestos that declared these revolutions, were translated and um, sent by ship to other countries. Um, rumors and fake news circulated across space, across borders and the sea, but also individuals moved from one country to the other country during and after these revolutions. Volunteers of freedom fighters, the best known of them would be Lord Byron, fighting in Greece. By the way, hundreds of them moving from Italy to Greece or in other directions or to Spain and Portugal, 
and also other types of displacement connected these revolutions, for instance, refugees. Interesting connections, especially that idea of kind of in one square, celebrating it using the language of the other. And I think the allusion to the Arab Spring does help contemporary audiences kind of understand this idea of sort of zeitgeist, of hearing the news and going, oh, well, what's that mean for us? Um, and thinking of that kind of contemporary audiences understanding this, we... This, a lot of the history that you're talking about, a lot of the arguments you're making are maybe not as present in the kind of current historiography of our understanding of the revolutionary history of the early 1800s. How do you think that your book and this focus on the history in Southern Europe, the revolutionary elements there, changes our wider understanding about the period of revolution more broadly across Europe? Well, I, I think it changes our understanding of that period uh... In, um, at various levels. First of all, because it integrates a part of Europe that is generally ignored by generally histories of the age of revolution or general histories of Europe. And by so doing, um, it offers um, an alternative or more complex sort of genealogy of the birth of the struggle for representative government in Europe. But also it offers a revised chronology. What sense a revised chronology? Because uh, standard histories of the age of revolutions in Europe um, have as a starting point 1789, the French Revolution, 1815, the end of the Napoleonic Wars, 1830, you know, another revolution in Paris, 1848, the European-wide revolutionary wave. And very often the 1820s are hardly mentioned in his kind of classic uh, history of the age of revolution, Eric Olson, spoken about the dual revolution of the industrial revolution, the French revolution, mentions uh, pleasingly the 1820s, but dismisses them as kind of minor events, but elitist, weak, bereft of any class action. I turn this interpretation upside down. I talk about these revolutions as mass-based, as, as, as revolutions supported by large um, sectors of the populations. And that's why I talk about a, constitu um, a popular constitutionalism. Wow. I think that's a great way now to kind of dive into more of the specifics of what's happening and what it means now that we have all this useful context. Um, so thinking of this idea of uh, kind of when we start and end this, when we understand what's leading up to these simultaneous uprisings, um, you argue in the book, quote, the 1820s uprisings in Southern Europe demonstrate the fragility, not the solidity, of the post-1815 political order. Can you tell us what you mean by this? Yes, absolutely. Um, again, sort of received wisdom about the restoration, the period between 1815 and 1848, is that this is a period of peace and stability, after the upheavals of the Napoleonic Wars, um, a period in which a new system of international relations was introduced and enforced by the hegemonic powers of Europe via the principle of intervention that was in fact um, experimented first in Piedmont, in Naples, and in, in Spanish um, 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 with the foreign armies, whether French or Austrian, invading to crush revolutions. And so within this framework, these are really, again, minor blips that didn't pose any threat to the stability of the continent. While 
for me, my interpretation is alternative to this one, um, in the sense that these revolutions, the very fact that these revolutions broke out, demonstrate that large sectors of society um, were not willing to accept the settlement, the political and institutional settlement agreed by the Congress of Vienna in 1815, the reorganization of the map of Europe and the reorganization of the states as it had been agreed, left um, many social groups deeply frustrated. And this is why um, so easily revolutions broke out and so easily they succeeded in um, basically achieving their immediate goals without much bloodshed. So what then kind of take us through the initial beginnings of this unfolding? Um, because one of the things that I found really interesting and really powerful in your examination of what happened in each place, but then also how they're connected, is there seemed to be very much a, a script, kind of this is how these things start. Can you tell us about sort of this process and comment on to what extent it was the same in different places? Yes, absolutely. The armies are those who initiate the revolutions across Southern Europe. Um, army officers and their soldiers, because one of the um, consequences of the end of the Napoleonic War is that, as it always happens after great um, sort of periods of military action is that you have the problem um, of the demobilization of the armies. And this demobilization is not successful. You have across Southern Europe um, highly politicized um, armies in which um, officers who had fought in the Napoleonic Wars and had actually acquired new political ideas um, lose their salaries or are fired or they are demoted because they had been on the wrong side, not on the side of the absolute um, monarchies. So the army officers, there is a surplus of unemployed, badly paid um, officers and soldiers across South, Southern Europe, highly politicized by the Napoleonic peoples. And these are the groups that lead the revolutions that declare the revolution, that declare the constitutions, and they do so following a certain sort of pattern of behavior, practices. They, uh, they organize in secret, through secret societies, these revolutions, and then they initiate them by declaring the revolution, by reading out in the public, in front of civilians, um, declarations uh, that force the existing monarchs to introduce a constitution. In fact, in Spain, Portugal, Piedmont, and Naples, these are fairly peaceful events. The army uh, forces the kings to introduce a constitution without bloodshed. The, the case of the Greek Revolution is different because in the Ottoman Empire, the declaration of the revolution by Ypsilanti coincides also with a war. But it's not entirely different from the others because here too, the insurgents, fundamentally, although they're waging a war against the Ottomans, they're also happy to negotiate with them to obtain, uh, to meet their objectives. Can you tell us a bit more about the goals of these revolutions? When, when they're standing up and making the declarations, what, what do they want? To what, to what extent 
does this end up then being achieved? They want to introduce constitutions in the existing monarchies. These revolutions are not Republican revolutions. They're revolutions to change the fabric, the organization of the monarchy. It is true that the revolution leads temporarily to the establishment of Republican government, but here too, the insurgents are looking for a king. And they do so not only because um, it suits them for diplomatic reasons uh, to make their revolution more acceptable in the, eye, in the eyes of the European powers, but because they also generally believe that the monarchical government is superior. And this is a belief that is shared by all the revolutionaries, who however claim that after the Napoleonic War, during which the population in Southern Europe had uh, shed their blood to defend their monarchs, now the kings had to pay a debt of gratitude to them and grant a degree of freedom to these populations through the introduction of representative government and uh, elections. Are they successful? Well, they are insofar as constitutions are introduced. The limitations to the success is the fact that, um, of course, the introduction of constitutional government, um, as much as it is a very um, popular, I mean, it's supported by large sectors of the populations, it also leads to civil wars and also produces resistance. So it divides society for a variety of um, reasons. Constitutions are introduced, but in Spain and Portugal, they also produce a resistance from a royalist movement that is a mass movement hostile to constitutions and supportive of um, absolutism. And in other countries, civil wars break out for other reasons. In the case of Sicily, because Sicily wanted independence, autonomy from Naples. In the case of the Greek uh, Revolution, because some territories could not tolerate the temporary um, leadership of other territories over them during the revolution. So the, the revolutions unleash a, a, another wave of internal conflicts. These revolutions ultimately collapse, not because of internal weaknesses, but because of external pressures, because of military intervention. Also, the Greek Revolution, which is the only revolution that succeeds, succeeds thanks to the intervention of foreign armies and foreign diplomats. Ah. Can, given the sort of internal problems being created by this, the forces unleashed, can you tell us a bit more about why these revolutions collapsed and the role of the external actors? Yes, they collapsed because of the intervention of much more powerful and larger foreign armies. Um, in front of which the local populations did not rise up in arms, although they were called to a kind of total war against the foreign armies, and sensibly so, because there was no realistic chance of success. Um, this is certainly the case of Spain, Piedmont, and uh, Naples. So as much as local populations were hostile to absolute government, they were also clear that, that, that they could not really a war against um, more powerful um, armies, not least because the, their monarchs supported foreign intervention and were hostile to the constitution. And um, authority, a form of government, 
without the support of the monarch was not conceivable, not realistic at the time, given the um, the diplomatic context, but also not conceivable be um, because of the political culture of the populations of the time. Monarchical power could not be dismantled. It's what Napoleon had done, um, but not what the local population in Southern Europe wanted for themselves. Mm. So speaking of this idea of what kind of the local population wanted, what they were willing to try in terms of new ideas versus not, um, you talk about these countries during the time period having, quote, a blend of new ideas of citizenship endowed with individual rights alongside older communitarian concepts of rights as privileges, a really interesting blending of kind of old ideas and new ideas. Can you tell us about kind of what this looked like and maybe some of the tensions it caused? Yes, absolutely. This constitutional text introduced a number of individual rights, and that's supported by the notion that the sovereign is the sovereign nation um, as a kind of... Um, um, I mean, some of uh, free citizens um, who have individual rights that are protected, like the right of property and also the right for many citizens or the overwhelming majority of them to vote, for, uh, in di although indirectly, for a parliament. They introduce freedom of expression, freedom, freedom of the press, although not, although freedom of expression is limited by a lack of religious toleration. And this is the first communitarian dimension of the culture of the time that even a sovereign nation of free citizens is still a religiously homogeneous one, culturally homogeneous one of Catholic, of Orthodox nations. So that's the first communitarian element that, if you like, limits no, the individual freedoms of the citizens at the time. But there are other types of freedom um, that um, the supporters of the revolution um, advocate or, uh, or want to defend that pre-exist. The artisans, for instance, um, support universal suffrage for men, but they also want to defend their corporate privileges against the free market. And even the political, the governance of their corporations as part of the Broader governance of the state, for instance, in Sicily. Villagers and community of peasants, they need that the freedom of the commune and the protection of common land against privatization is a freedom that the constitutions need to defend against the encroachment of landlords willing to buy their land. So freedom as the privilege of a community as an entity blended with the freedom of an individual who, as an individual, has the right to vote, represents a feature of these revolutions. And also freedom of territories, freedom of, of, um, of, of municipal authorities, or given regions with their own legislative privileges are something that um, um, local populations in Sicily or the Basque countries um, or in the islands of the Aegean, want to defend along with supporting the constitution and representative governments. We may see these types of freedoms as incompatible 
today, but they were not in the mind of the actors of these revolutions at the time. Ah, very interesting to unpick how these different ideas sort of practically went together, made sense in people's heads. Um, and sort of in the same vein, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about how these revolutionary moments, um, all of these changes happening politically, impacted relations between um, the revolutionary governments, the monarchies, and of course the other huge institution, the church. Yes, absolutely. This is um, um, a crucial aspect if you want to understand these revolutions. First of all, that everywhere governments wanted to have the churches on their side and according to the Napoleonic model, they want to use the churches, they want to use the bishops um, as a sort of longer manus of their new political power to get their support and their endorsement for constitutional uh, government and the introduction of constitutions. Do they achieve in their goal? Well, partly so, because what is fascinating about studying the relationship between church and revolutionary government is that um, the revolution sort of trigger a revolution also within the church hierarchies. To talk about church as a single institution um, misses the point. Catholic and Orthodox churches were very complex institutions that included um, highly educated people um, from the upper classes, but also semi-literate uh, priests or monks um, whose uh, political views um, and whose aspirations were closer to those of their own community of peasants than to those of the hierarchy they had to take orders from. This is crucial to understand how the individual members of the churches responded. So some bishops had to send out public documents to be read in churches in support of the constitution. Some refused to do so. For instance, the Archbishop and Primate of, uh, of Lisbon, Primate of Portugal, and so he was expelled from the country, and other bishops also uh, refused to support the government. And at the, at the level of the local parishes, some priests supported the constitution and preached in favor of the constitution in front of their parishioners, um, arguing um, in favor of the compatibility between constitutional government and the Holy Scriptures. And others, in fact, led the counter-revolution, fought against the revolution. The same can be said about uh, monks uh, in monastic communities. They were also divided. So you find priests uh, fighting in armies, leading um, soldiers in the battlefield, as they did in Greece, where all the church members supported, um, without exception, um, the revolution. You find them in parliaments, elected as members of the parliament. You find them in patriotic societies, um, talking about um, politics. You know, priests and monks are everywhere in the public sphere. Ah. I'm glad you raised the idea that the church was not one monolithic institution and detailed kind of the different ways that priests were involved um, in the public sphere, sphere, because I think that that helps explain kind of the mixing that was happening, the sort of the fact that there's variation um, in different places and understanding the roles of the different actors. Um, and to further complicate the story, there's another group of people I kind of would love to ask you to bring into this conversation of 
how they're being impacted by change, how they're impacting change. Um, and that's the role of journalism. The fact that there's so much literacy, that there's so much improved communication. You already mentioned at the beginning of the interview the idea that a lot of people were simply able to be aware of what was happening in other places and this had an impact. Can you tell us more about kind of this news and information side of things and how that played into the revolutions and the work against them? Yes, absolutely. So before the revolutions, there was hardly any journalism in these countries. There were just a few official gazettes. There was not even um, um, printed press in the Ottoman Empire basically did not exist. There was maybe one in Constantinople. So what these revolutions do was to sort of legalize free journalism and political journalism. So there is a sudden explosion of um, the number, so the quantity um, and um, of um, newspapers and political periodicals, especially in Spain and Portugal and Naples and to a lesser extent um, in the context of the Greek Revolution. Now here there is a kind of paradox that we need to unpick because in fact these are societies with extremely high illiteracy rates. The majority, the overwhelming majority of the citizens in these countries cannot read. Um, so how are these people politicized and exposed to information, to definition of what a constitution is, to the novelty of their rights, they are exposed to it in very many different ways um, by a, 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 a different set of uh, means. Political communication becomes faster and intensified thanks to public debate and public reading. And newspapers and manifestos and declarations were read in squares, uh, in churches, at Sermons by priests were a form of political communication. They were read in public by, in patriotic societies and clubs and listened to by people who could not read. They were read and discussed uh, among the ranks of the members of secret societies that become public institutions during revolutions. The Carboneria, the Comuneros, or the Filiki are secret societies that organize the revolutions, but they also societies that uh, um, contribute to the expansion of the public sphere during, during revolutions, um, whose members discuss politics, uh, interfere in uh, sort of the canvassing and the electoral campaign for the elections, uh, discuss um, parliamentary debates, and of course, there is also the uncontrolled circulation of rumors that um, fuels the expansion of the public sphere beyond the printed material. Can you tell us a bit about the rumors? Yes, rumors are a fascinating um, feature of these revolutions. And in fact, rumors tended to be uh, condemned by revolutionaries as a kind of form of irrational communication fueled by the enemies of the revolutions and uh, taken on by gullible, uh, uneducated people. So they undermined the revolutions. In reality, 
um, there is little distinction between uh, printed communication and verbal communication between uh, and um, the distinction we have in mind see today and they had in mind between a rational printed political journalism and an irrational sort of uh, uh, circulation of rumors based on conspiracy theory is a, um, one that does not exist even the newspapers um, contribute to the circulation of rumors rumors were fueled well what was the content of rumors um, a lot was rumors were about invasion this is a moment in which the Austrian army invades Piedmont or invades Naples. So there were fear of other invasions in Spain, in Portugal. Um, but sometimes fake news were fabricated by revolutionaries as a tool of uh, political battles. For instance, you'd spread the news um, in Naples that the Russian army and the Greek army would come soon to rescue the revolution and reinstate the constitution after the collapse of the revolution. And the same happened in Spain, where counter-revolutionaries spread fake news about the imminent arrival of the Russian army that would crush the Constitution. So rumors were used constantly as a tool um, of the political battles going on during the revolutions also. They were not just the product of uncontrolled, irrational uh, fears spread by the uneducated. I think that that will sound quite familiar to many people yes. thinking about <laughs> politics today. Yes, exactly. So thank you for telling us about rumors um, and the many uses of them. Thinking then sort of towards the longer term period of the book, obviously you've detailed a lot of changes, a lot of reactions, a lot of counter reactions. What were the long term consequences of the revolutions, both the one that succeeded and the others that failed? Well, the main long-term consequence was, was a sort of legacy of instability because although these revolutions were crushed and um, Greek was turned into a semi-independent state he, uh, where there was no constitutional freedom, it was became an absolute um, monarchy, the quest, the aspiration for constitutional government and representative institutions remained. They could only be temporarily suppressed and also the quest for local autonomies and the defense of privileges. Um, in a context in which the monarchs um, remained hostile to it. And so this fostered a kind of um, long-term instability with various attempts to find um, a, a sort of compromise between revolution and restoration with the introduction of constitutions between the 1830s and 50s that saved, rescued the idea of representative government, but um, that introduced it on the basis of very limited suffrage. So, with the, so uh, in the light of these attempts to find um, compromises, the constitutions of the 1820s were ditched as uh, no longer um, useful because they had introduced um, quasi-universally direct suffrage for men, and this was not acceptable for part of the elites and the monarchs. So in that sense, uh, those constitutional documents were abandoned. At the same time, the memory of these events of the 1820s revolutions um, had an enduring uh, effect and were absorbed into a sort of um, idea of an 
uh, a, um, a genealogy um, among liberals by the time the representative government became a, a permanent reality in southern Europe, the memory of these events was rescued uh, in the sense that they came to be seen um, also by the establishment and by the elites as the founding moment of um, constitutional freedom in all of these countries and emancipation. Mm. A very interesting combination of sort of short-term suppression, but with longer-term implications. Um, so thank you for taking us through that. And of course, it would be remiss of me not to point out that of all of the aspects that you've been discussing, obviously the book has all the fabulous details behind it. So for anyone who's intrigued by what you've been telling us, um, obviously I'd point them to read the book in its full self to learn about what's happening in each of the places in detail for the topics we've discussed. Today, long, um, I'm going to award the potential leaders. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of detail, right? And there's a lot of pieces. How, how can you possibly cover these different places in Southern Europe and all the aspects in terms of the relations with the church, the relations with the military, the relations with literacy? Um, I don't think anyone could do that in just one or two paragraphs. So, of course, it's a long book. Um, this feels perhaps my final question, maybe a little bit unfair. Uh, we obviously are the New Books Network, so usually when I ask this, the books are, have been out maybe for a little bit. But in fact, as we're speaking, the book is not quite released yet. By the time that you're listening to it, it will be. Um, but this is obviously a very kind of big milestone about to happen. That said, you have finished the book. It will soon, if not now, be available to the listeners. Do you have anything you might be thinking of working on now that this project is done? Whether or not it's on the same topic, whether or not it's a big book, maybe you need to sleep for a bit first? <laughs> yes, beside, uh, apart from resting a bit, which I, I do need, as we all do when we finish a big uh, project, I'm thinking about um, writing a history of the age of revolutions as a history of counter-revolutions because studying these revolutions made me aware um, that um, popular royalism and popular support for absolutism was an equally important and also historically novel phenomenon that needs to be studied in its own right as a semi-permanent feature of the history of Europe, especially as if we take the South as our sort of space of analysis. So I'm thinking about looking at the question of popular mobilization, sort of politicization of the masses from the point of view of those people who hated democracy, who did not want constitutional government, who intervened in the public sphere in defense of the kings, but could also question monarchical power and act independently, even if they did so in the name of um, the restoration of um, monarchical authority. So this is a thing that is also full of apparent, so apparent contradiction uh, and it, which does not meet all our, our expectations and I want to explore it um, as my next step. Oh. 
Well, that sounds fascinating, but it does also sound like a large project. So best of luck investigating that. Um, and while you do, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Southern Europe in the Age of Revolutions, just out from Princeton University Press. Maurizio, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Miranda. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.